Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church as we continue our series in the Psalms. And the series is entitled Worship God in Technicolor because the Psalms give us a vocabulary to worship God in all the complexities of life, when we're happy, when we're sad, when we're mad, when we're glad. The title of this morning's message is God Knows. God Knows. And our text is Psalm 139. Does God really know? Is he omniscient? That's the fancy word for that God knows everything. And, and by the way, is God really there? Theological term for that. Is he omnipresent? Everywhere, equally present. And here's another question. Is God for us? Is God all-loving? Is he omnibenevolent toward his people? Is he infinitely good? These are the questions we tend to ask, church, when we are in difficult situations. I've asked this question recently, like this morning. We ask God if he truly knows what we're going through. Is he really there for us? Does he really care about us? Is he working for our good? See, these are the questions that provide the context for Psalm 139 because King David, the one who wrote Psalm 139, was facing some serious opposition from the enemies of God. And he was asking himself these questions. This is the tension that we feel in this psalm. It's the tension we all can experience in life. We believe that God knows and that he knows all things, but does he really know where I'm at right now? We believe that God is there. We, we believe theologically he's omnipresent, fully there everywhere at the same time. But do we believe he's there for us? We believe that God loves his people. He's omnibenevolent. But is his love, is his care being experienced by us today? It doesn't feel like it sometimes. Psalm 139 answers these questions. Psalm 139 is where God, through King David, calls us to thanksgiving to God in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our lament. You're going to feel a tension in this psalm. It's a psalm that says, give thanks to God, and it's a psalm that's lamenting and saying, oh, but the opposition is fierce against me. This psalm helps us worship God in technicolor so that we know that he knows where we're at. We know that he loves us. As a matter of fact, the theme of this psalm on the screen is this. God knows you and God cares for you. God knows you and he cares for you. Not just in general, but for you. Not historically, but right now. Yes, in general. Yes, historically. But God cares for you Right now, he knows exactly what you're thinking. Let me offer a word of caution. King David wrote this psalm for the Christian, for the believer in Christ. He may not have understood Christ yet fully, as we do, but he knew of Christ. This is written for the Christian. If you are not a Christian, if you are not a follower of Christ, first of all, thank you so much for coming to this church It is a privilege to have you. I'd like to say hi to you after the service at our guest table. We have a gift for you. I want to learn more about you. 
But I want to be careful to tell you that the blessings you're going to hear about right now are for those who have bent their knee and their hearts and their lives to the lordship of Jesus, and they've confessed their sins, they've repented, turned from them, and confessed Jesus as their Lord. And for those of us who have done that, King David gives us wonderful, wonderful news. And here it is. God knows you. Point one. God knows you. Look at Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot obtain it. In this first section, the omniscience of God, the fact that he knows everything in totality, is expressed through two opposites that encompass the whole. Like sometimes we say, morning and evening, or I know, somebody, I know something from stem to stern. Those opposites indicate total completeness. These extremes reveal that God knows us totally, completely, comprehensively. Look at the text. He knows, he knows us, our innermost thoughts. He knows when we sit down and when we rise up and everything in between. When he sits down and he rests, like I did on this camp out, when I was exhausted, one morning I was just sitting there. Like there was just no activity going on in my brain. I just sat there. I think Kyle looked at me and says, you okay, Al? And he knows when I'm walking around, when we were playing soccer or when we were doing physical training with Raphael at 6 in the morning in a mosquito-infested field and when we're all complaining about the 5,000 push-ups he had us doing and then we said, and there's 4,000 mosquitoes on our body, Raphael just said, it's just all part of the experience. <laughs> That's vintage, Gavilan. Airborne. Airborne, sir. Sorry I said anything. <laughs> My abs are killing me right now. We must have done a thousand sit-ups. He, he knows my thoughts. Do you see that there? At the end of verse 2, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Listen, God knows what you're going to say before you know you're going to say it. Oh, I wish he would share that with me sometimes so I wouldn't say it all the superfluous things that I say. God knows me altogether. Verse 5, he hems me in before and behind. He lays his hand on me. This knowledge is too much for me. Do you see that in verse 6? That sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds flowery, doesn't it? It's very poetic, isn't it? You know what he's saying here? This really scares me. See, it's one thing for us to believe that God knows everything, but David brings it to a very intimate, personal level. He knows everything about you. God is the one being, the one person. He's God. He's the only one that gets you. Right, wives? You're sitting here thinking, I wish my husband would get me. Desi's thinking that. It's only been 33 years. And I won't ever get her com comprehensively, not like God does. I'm trying, trying to learn. But here's the scary part. 
Here's the scary part. Because when we think that he knows me comprehensively, it scares us because will he accept us? Will he still want to be around us? Why would he? It's, it's like that awful dream we have, right? You're dreaming that you're at a social context, maybe a church, and suddenly in your dream you realize you're naked. It's horrifying. I mean, like if I were to tell you right now, we all will know instantly all of your recent Google searches. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly this auditorium would be vacant. It's scary. He knows me. He really knows me. And will he accept me? See, for the non-believer, it's horrifying. That's why people run from God or claim there is no God or try to be their own God. But even for the Christian, dear Christian, you can think to yourself, God knows me comprehensively. Does he still want to be with me? And this is where the gospel sings. This is where the gospel sings. Knowing me like no one else knows me. God knows not only my thoughts, but the words I'm going to say before I say them. And he knows my intentions. And he knows what motivates me down at the base of my whole being. He loves me in Christ. We sang about this in that last song. He knew me before the foundations of the earth. And he chose me in Christ. Oh, friends, that's a wonderful truth. God doesn't just know us. God is always with us. Point two, God is with you. Let's read verses 7 to 12. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light above about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. The first point is God is omniscient. He knows all things. David makes it very personal. He knows all things about you. And in Christ, he loves you. Oh, that's good news, Christian. The second point is about God's omnipresence. God is everywhere at the same time. And he's fully there, absolutely there. But then he takes it personally and he's there for you. See, verse seven is a rhetorical question. Where can I go from your spirit? Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? And the answer is nowhere. There's nowhere you can go apart from God's presence. And David uses these now four extremes. And the first one is, if I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I descend into Sheol, you are there. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning, think of sunrise. If I make my bed, uh, excuse me, if I take the wings of the morning sunrise and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, think of this um, Israel and think of the uttermost parts of the sea as the far west because the Mediterranean Sea was their world. So if I go to the far east, the wings of the morning, or if I take the uttermost parts of the sea at the edge of the Mediterranean, which for them was the edge of the world, from east to west and everything in between, you are there. You are there. And, and by the way, let me just say this. For a Jew, the water was horrifying. They were not known as sailors. 
They, they were not at all. Because the waters represented judgment. The waters represented things that, that scared them. And what he's saying here is, even when I'm in the midst of the waters, in the midst of the seas, in the tumultuous uttermost parts of the sea, there's no, nothing like being lost at sea to be truly lost. God is with me. He is there. Here's the point, dear brothers and sisters. You are never so lost that God is not with you in Christ. And then darkness and light. The darkness isn't dark to you. Verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light to you. In the dark night of your soul, dear Christian, God is with you. It can't get dark enough for God not to see because he turns the darkness into light. There's no depression that's too deep for God. He's there. He is there with you in every place, in everywhere. Now, again, you can say to yourself, wow, this is good news. But now, dear non-Christian, I'm speaking to you. But if you're starting to get an inkling that apart from Christ, you face the wrath of God. See, this becomes suddenly a little, the tension kind of leaks into this passage here. Because if I've sinned against God, or I'm not reconciled to God, what this scripture says is, I can't get away from God. And dear Christian, what it says to us is that in him we live and move and have our being. We cannot hide from God. When I have conflict with someone, I am tempted to hide from them. I have been known to duck behind a display at Costco. Listen, man, if you pastor in the same place for 21 years, you will see faces who think you are not a pastor. They think you are a demono. Like, who is that demon over there? And, you know, it hurts. But you're also afraid, you know, like, whoa. And, and I'm just like, there they come, and here I go. You can't do that with God. And your conflict with God, listen to me carefully, if you're not a Christian, your conflict with God is far more serious and far more profound and far more eternal than any conflict you or I might have with people in your life. Even if, sadly, you have experienced divorce, and I know that's horrible, I'm not making light of that, and you would see your ex-spouse in a place, and it's the last person you want to see. Understandably, you want to flee, right? But multiply that by a million. Every one of you has to face God. And apart from Christ, it's a horrifying thought. Even in hell, God is present. But his presence means something very different. It is not a benevolent presence. In heaven, he's present. In the darkness, he turns it into light. In the most tumultuous seas, God is there. God is there. Oh, friends, this is where the sacrifice of Christ sings. This is where King David, who is a picture of Christ, is telling us right now, Christian, good news. God is always with you. And when you're aware of your sin, run to him. He's the one who in Christ has made you his righteousness so that in Christ, you don't have to be ashamed of God. See, this is what makes us so silly, Christian, when we run from God, when we sin. God is with you before you sinned, 
while you're sinning and after you sinned. And for you to try to run from God in shame is to not believe that he sees you in Christ as his righteousness. And it's to think that somehow you could get away from God. It would be like one of these children that are running around right now would stand right here and say, you can't see me. And we can see them. And that's what we do with God. And then we begin to cry. And God picks us up and quiets us down. And he says, I love you. There is nothing you can do that would cause me not to love you because I've loved you in Christ. There is nowhere you can go that I'm not there. I'm there before you get there. I'm there while you're there. And when you're lost at sea and really lost at sea, my hand will guide you. Do you feel lost this morning? I mean, really lost. Do you feel in darkness this morning? Like super darkness. God is light for you. God's hand will guide you right now. Not because you deserve it, but because Christ won it for you, Christian. And if you're not a Christian and you're desperate, oh, friend, bow your knee to Jesus. For he is there for his people. Because he created us, point three. I love verses 13 to 18. Verses 13 to 18. I I want you to see how David is moving to a more and more personal aspect with God. Listen to these verses. These are amazing. For you formed me, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. How much more intimate can that be? God knit you in your mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you know how many millions of chemical reactions take place for the most simple of your organs to function, the most simple bodily functions? You know what it takes to have your body function just perfectly? My brother recently had to have a pacemaker put in because his heart was not beating exactly right, and so he could not breathe properly. He would be working out, and he'd say, Al, I don't know why I'm out of breath. Breath. My brother is 71, but he's in great shape. And it's because his heart was not beating precisely. And how many times do your heart, does your heart beat in a minute? I don't know, 60? And how many minutes in a day? And uh, Do you get the picture? I mean, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That David is saying, worship God. Worship God. For you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And then he goes back into this intimacy in verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Think about that. Think about that. You were intricately woven in the depths of the earth by God himself. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Unformed. Now, pregnant ladies, when you were pregnant, wasn't it amazing to see your child in the womb? But that's a formed substance. This is your unformed substance God saw. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God knows all your days already. They're written. Verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. Go to the beach and start counting the sand. I awake and I am still 
with you. What does this mean? Here's the application. Are these thoughts of God toward you precious to you? Put it on the screen, please. Verses um, 17 and 18 again. Yes. See where it says, how precious to me are your thoughts? And then at the end of 18, I awake and I'm still with you. So here's my question for you. When you think about what God thinks about you, what do you think about? I know that's terrible English, but stay with me, okay? When you think about what God thinks about you, what do you think about? In other words, how does God see you? Forget about me. Forget about theology for a moment. Theology is at the base of this. I'm talking about you right now. What is God thinking about you right now? Are you his favorite? Do you get to sit in the front row with a little crown on your head like when you're a little kid? You get a bunch of stars on the crown. I never got any of that stuff. I was always on the back row. Albert has problems with self-control. Albert talks too much. Albert's fighting too much, you know. I'd bring it home and my mom would be like, what is wrong with you, Albert? Do, do you, is God mad at you right now? Is he disappointed with you? Is God just always critical of you? You can never get it right. Does God nag you? You see what I'm doing? I'm I'm putting what we've experienced in life from from either uh, parents or or, or co-workers or classmates or spouses, and we're kind of superimposing it on God, which, by the way, parents and co-workers and spouses, be careful what you say, because especially for little kids, get me when I say this, you are God to them. You understand what I'm saying, right? But let's talk about God, God, capital G. What does he think about you? And the place I like to go, because see, when David says this in verse 17, sometimes I think, God, can you just not think about me right now? Because I think what you're thinking about me is not very good because I don't deserve you to think anything good about me. I'm a little ashamed of myself. I'm going to hide from you. Oh, I can't hide from God. He's everywhere. I'm going to turn the lights off. Ah, God will turn the darkness in the I'm going to go to the far side of the world on an ocean somewhere. Ah, God's already there. So what do I do? I renew my mind with what the Bible says, gives me pictures of what God thinks of me. So that that thought of God of me can be precious to me, not because I deserve it, but because Christ won it for me. And I always go to Colossians 3.12 on the screen. And let me give you some background on Colossians 3.12. So the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey, one of the seven churches there in modern-day Turkey. And he just finished in chapter 3, Reminding them that they have our new creations in Christ. He's talking to Christians. And then he asks them, or he tells them, he commands them in the Lord Jesus Christ to be who they are, to put off certain behaviors and to put on certain behaviors. So mind you, he's talking to Christians. This is what they're currently wrestling with and having to put off. So put off this and put on this. And you know what he's telling them to put off? This is Christians. Imagine him telling that to us, church. You ready? Stop being sexually immoral. Stop being greedy and covetous. Stop being angry with one another. Stop slandering one another. Stop lying to one another. 
Now listen to what God says to them after telling them to stop doing these things. Listen to how God calls them. Well, how do you think God would be thinking about these people who are being sexually immoral and lying to one another and slandering one another? How do you think God would see them? These are Christians. Now you go to verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Holy. What? Go back and read this chapter. Holy? Yes, and not only holy, but beloved. And then he tells them, instead of being angry and sexually immoral and slanderous and greedy and angry and, and, and whatever, all the other stuff there, be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient. But catch how he sees them before they've changed. They're holy. They're beloved. In Christ, God's thoughts of you are that you are his chosen ones, his beloved This does not mean that God approves of your behavior. No, he's calling them to change by the power of his spirit. No, he calls us to change, but it is clear that God delights in you. God delights in you. God is for you. God will never, ever forget you or abandon you in Christ. He is with you. Ah, Jesus delights in you. Doesn't mean that you don't need to change. You know where you need to change. But he delights in you. Those are his, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, he delights in you. Receive that. He delights in you. He delights in you. He's always with you. And that leads us to point four. God cares for you. Listen, God knows you. God is always with you. God created you. And God cares for you. Verses 19 to 24. And look at verse 19. Tension is introduced in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God, right? So he goes from verses 17 and 18 to this beautiful, slow song. I just imagine Zeke, you know, singing it, you know, and just this melody, this romantic, oh God, you love me and your thoughts toward me. And then all of a sudden, you know, like Jimi Hendrix comes on. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Exclamation point. Note the ex- Look at the text. Note, note the exclamation points. Read it with feeling. Oh, men of, of blood, <laughs> depart from me. This is more like a scene out of 24. Jack Bauer. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh, oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. What? What happened to all the love, man? What happened to the Starbucks set? We got hard rock right now. Yes, we do. Both and. There's tension in the psalm. David isn't saying these truths in, the, in, in, in a vacuum of everybody feels good. All right? Barney in the corner. I love you. You love me. You know, no. David is saying this stuff with, with, with enemies at the gate. And David is passionate about loving God and hating his enemies. Now, it is a righteous hatred. I'm not talking about a, a vengeful hatred. But D- David is crying out to God, deliver me from these people. They are your enemies. This is hard. I am afraid. Where are you, God? Do you really know what I'm going through at work, at school, in your neighborhoods? Do you understand, God? Have you created me? Oh, God, maybe I deserve this. Maybe because of my sin, your thoughts are, are, are against me somehow. And we've got to fight that. See, part of these enemies that David is fighting here, for him, they were real enemies. For us, they're enemies in the spirit. 
We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities in the air. See, these enemies are the enemies that come in and say, oh, you are, you should be ashamed of yourself. They're the the enemies that say, if they knew who you really are, they wouldn't love you. I mean, you know, when we were on this camp out, you kind of got to know what someone really was like, okay? <laughs> I could hear them as I was walking late at night, man. It sounded like animals were fighting some of the tents. It was the snores. I mean, it was some of the most amazing snores I've ever heard in my life. And, and then just in a, in a moment that was just an unguarded moment, Juan, we start asking Juan Perez, why did you leave Colombia? And he starts sharing his life story. You know, or, or, or some other person starts sharing with you a weakness in their life. Right? For us guys, it's harder to do that, ladies. Because, because we've been taught, don't ever show any weakness. If they really knew what I was like, they won't like me. So I'm going to figure out what this little subgroup of people, what this little community of people wants me to be. And then when I'm with them, I'm going to be that. But when I leave, I know who I really am. If they knew who I really was, they wouldn't like me. Because we think that about God. But how foolish. He knows what you're really like. He actually knows you better than you know yourself. And he loves you, Christian. Jesus died for you, Christian. You are the righteousness of God in Christ, Christian. You are accepted in Christ, Christian. That then enables us to be real with people. So I'm not just playing the game. That enables me to love others even when they irritate me because... God loves me when I did far more than irritate him. I rebelled against him. This is, this is beautiful stuff. But it's set in the context of real conflict. It's messy. It's really messy. Kind of like my tent looked at the end of this weekend. Juan and I had half the, the sand of the whole campground in the tent. <laughs> but the fellowship that we shared on the drive home, and he opened his life up to me. That was precious, brother. And I love you. I can say that because I know the mess of my life. And I was sharing my messes with him. Because God loves us. That's the gospel. That's what this is saying. That's what verses 19 to 24 are saying. Because in verse 23, after all of this tension, where does David go? He goes back to the beginning. He goes back to the first verse. In fact, show the first verse again here. Remember that verse? One, Psalm 139, verse 1, it started this way. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now show verses 23 and 24. He goes back to this theme. After all of the conflict, after all of the beautiful thoughts, after all of the unsettling thoughts, God really knows me. God's always with me. I can't run from God. God created me. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh, these thoughts are great. Or are they great? Oh, these enemies are here to get me. He goes back, verse 23, to the main point of this message. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. I see those enemies of you, but you know what? There's an enemy within. Lord, I accept the fact that you know me. I now know that you accept me, even though you know me better than anyone else, and you're always with me. So now, Lord, I come running to you. This is true Christianity, where we run to God with all of our wars, with all of our problems, with all of our ugliness, with all of the stuff, and we just run to him and says, God, you know me already, so I'm going to agree with you. Agree with God in Scripture. Search me, O oh God. Stop hiding from God. You can't anyways. This is a humble man. This is the person that Corey was describing as the meek person, man or woman. 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Why? Verse 24. And see if there be any grievous way in me. Lord, show me where I'm your enemy at times. Show me where the enemy within rises its head. Show me where there's areas in my life that cause grief to you firstly, but then to my spouse, my children, my, the, my fellow church members. Lord, show me. I can do it without fear because I know you accept me and you love me in Christ and you're changing me so I can, I can, I can run to you. I don't, I don't live in shame. And then verse 24 at B, and lead me into the way everlasting. Lead me into the way everlasting. Oh, church, God, Christian, God will lead you into the way everlasting. You will live in the glory of God forever and ever on the new heavens and new earth. That passage is secured. It's been paid for. You can never lose it. It's in Christ. So you can be aggressive with God. You can be open with other people, whether it's your spouse or whether it's a neighbor or whomever, because God assures you that he's going to lead you in the way everlasting. That's the way that pleases God. That's the way that blesses others. And that is the promise of God in this text. Let us pray. Worship team, would you please come up? Lord, I pray that you would take this word from Psalm 139. It may, may it be a, a staple, a staple, Lord, in our lives. I pray that in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that you would, if, there's, um, if there are unbelievers here this morning, Lord, I pray that right now the miracle of conversion, as it says in Romans 10, how will they know unless there's a preacher How will the preacher, how will they hear unless he goes? Lord, they've heard the preacher. Thank you for bringing them. They've heard the gospel. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would save them. That today you would save them. You're elect, God. Chosen before the foundations of the world. And they would say, okay, I get it this morning. And they would repent and believe. But Lord, I suspect most of us are your people. Lord, for those that have been trying to run from you in shame. Lord, would you, would you just show us your precious thoughts toward us? We would stop running. We would stop hiding like the little babies. Putting our hands over our eyes and say, well, God can't see me because I can't see him. And we would take our hands down and say, though I'm a little unsettled, God, I know you are good. I know you are good. And my hope is in Christ alone. For it is in Christ alone that I am the righteousness of God. I have a foreign righteousness, Christ's. And now God sees that on me. That's how you see me, Father. And Lord, you you then gently restore us and renew us and change us so that adulterers become faithful. Liars become truth tellers. The mean and critical and slanderous become kind and encouraging and uplifting the sexually immoral find hope they don't ever hit that button anymore on the screen and look at that image and in the meantime they don't walk away in shame from you but they run to you and say daddy 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 help me daddy and you're there to help them because you saw it you chose them in christ the depressed who are sitting in darkness would see a great light. Jesus, you are the light of the world. Lord, pour your spirit out on us right now. May these words come alive. May the gospel sing to us. 
For it is in Christ alone that we trust in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand reverently. Please focus on the Lord. Please worship the Lord. Respond to God's word as we sing in Christ alone.